Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. As you guys know, we've been walking through Discipleship Weekend this last few days together. And Pastor Brandon asked if I would be willing to preach this weekend as a way to kind of join what's been going on in our ministry on Friday and Saturdays into what's going on on Sunday. And so I jumped at the opportunity. I was allowed to do this last year, and I thought it was a good idea then. And it's been 365 days, and I remember how bad an idea it was to do it then. But in last year was one service, and I can remember at the end of that service saying, I'm never going to do that again. And then I volunteered to do it again, and it's two services now. So um, you guys are just going to have to pray with me and pick me up. Um, that first service, I barely got through it, not because of energy, but just because of what the Lord's doing. And so just, just bear with me this morning. The, the real heroes of this weekend are our small group leaders. If you're a small group leader that, over here that works with me all weekend, stand up. You'll be able to tell because they're the ones with no... Uh, yeah. You guys can uh, sit down. You can tell the, who they are because they're the ones that are, uh, need some coffee. So if you see them around this morning, uh, give them a high five, give them a hug, slip them a, a, a gift card to Starbucks, give them a, a Red Bull, a 12-hour energy, something, because we're, we're dragging. But these kids have just been awesome all weekend. We just uh, fed 75 of them down there in the fellowship hall. And uh, I can't tell you how uh, blessed we are with this group. This... Uh, as I've walked around over the last two weeks, as you guys know, I'm transitioning to the family pastor role here at this church, and uh, uh, I'm still going to be over student ministry, but our, our student ministry is growing and our kids' ministry is growing to the point that we need to hire some help. Um, and as I walk around, people have said, hey, Casey, thanks, uh, congratulations with your promotion and well-deserved and all those type of things, and I understand what they're saying but there ain't no promotion from that. I'm telling you, this is the next generation. I'm doing this because this is the skill set that God's given me to best serve these students, um, is to move into this family pastor role to be able to care for the next generation across this campus from birth to death. But there ain't no promotion. This is where it's at. This is where the next generation is at. And, um, I understand what you guys are saying, and I'm high-fiving you with that. But what God's allowed me to do here at Green Hill Church for the last five years is something I would never want to promote from. If you ask Pastor Brandon, somebody that's been a part of a student ministry for his whole career, he would say the same thing. God called him. He didn't call him out of student ministry. He just called him to lead in a different context for the kingdom, but he's still leading student ministry through leading me. And I'm not walking away from student ministry because there's no way to promote out of this. I'm just going to be leading from a different chair through some more leaders because our ministry is growing to the effect that we need to add more people to the team. So this is where it's at. And I want you guys to know that. And that's my heart. Um, I stepped out into the hallway for just a minute. There's 75 kids right here. There's another 100 down that hallway. What God's doing in our next-gen ministry is all Him. And he's at work, and uh, we're just going to hold on, stay out of the way, keep seeking God's face, keep praying for his favor, keep following after him, 
And I just wanted you guys to say uh, thank you, but I also wanted to give that caveat to these kids. I love you guys. I love these leaders. And uh, I'm going to be serving you and serving you leaders. And there ain't no promotion uh, from this group. This is the best thing there is. If you have your Bible, grab it and turn to Acts chapter 16. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach to my students and you guys both. But I'm going to preach to these students I'm going to carry over from what we've learned the last two days and what we've been walking in as a ministry for the last six weeks. The last six weeks, we've really leaned into what it means to live sin as we've talked through our missions emphasis, as we've talked through as a church, what it means to live on mission in 2023. We as a ministry have been speaking to that as well. And today was what I would kind of put the exclamation point on the sentence. This is the, not the end, but this is the end of of it with this uh, D-Now weekend. And so I'm going to preach to them, but as I preach to them, I hope you allow me to preach to you as we think about how we use our life invested for the kingdom, how we use our story, how we use our encounter with the gospel to be able to reach ourselves, but also to reach our city. And so I hope that you will lean in with me as we walk through these verses together in Acts 16 so that we can uh, better understand the gospel and so we can better reach our city. If you know uh, anything about uh, Acts uh, chapter 16, this is uh, after Jesus Christ has uh, ascended his death, burial, resurrection. He's ascended back to heaven and he's commissioned his disciples to go out and to uh, spread the gospel. This is in the context of this passage is um, AD uh, 325. And so at this point, Christianity has spread like crazy. You'll go through the stories of early Acts, Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, where uh, people are being saved, the Spirit is moving, thousands of people are being uh, saved, but because of that, there's also a great deal of persecution, and because of the great deal of persecution, the gospel has spread, and the gospel is spreading all over this area. Scholars say that the Roman Empire at this time was um, over half Christian, all because of Jesus Christ commissioning these 12 to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and this has spread like a ripple through the area. What we know about these 12 folks is there was nothing really special about them besides they were chosen by God. They weren't overly skilled. They, they didn't have a great deal of money. They didn't have power or position. They didn't even have a really flashy campaign or strategy of sharing the gospel. They just were obedient. They had these two convictions. They had a conviction that Jesus Christ had rose from the grave, and they had a conviction that the Holy Spirit was going to empower them to be able to communicate that message. Those were the two convictions around what is happening right now, and the gospel is spreading like crazy. God is blessing like crazy. The key to understanding Acts is to understand that it's not a specialized group of apostles that is sharing the gospel right here, but it's, it's just ordinary people that are convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and that they empower the Holy Spirit. It is ordinary people that are spreading the gospel. Luke goes out of his way in the book of Acts to communicate that to us, that it's just ordinary people, that the apostles were just ordinary and that they were the ones that were spreading the gospel, thus resulting in half of the Roman Empire being Christians at that time. So you may ask, Casey, what does it look like for me, or what does it look like for a believer in Christ to share the gospel? 
And so over the next few minutes out of Acts chapter 16, what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk us through three gospel conversations that Paul has, and then from that, teach us how we can minister to three different types of people in our city. Now, if you're with, with us today and you're not a believer in Christ, like you're just kicking the tires on this thing, you were invited here uh, uh, by somebody, you uh, just happened to come to Green Hill Church and you don't necessarily consider yourself a believer yet, or you're just trying to figure this whole Christian thing out, you may be thinking, this is the reason why I hate Christians. All they want to do is convert me all the time. Like that's all they want to do. All they want to do is, is tell me about Jesus. All they want to do is, is uh, try to convert me to their faith. And to that I say, yes, I'm sorry, but yes, I don't know any other way to say it, but yes, we are trying to convince you that Jesus Christ really did, that really can change your life. And if I wasn't trying to convert you, think of it from our, our perspective. If I wasn't trying to convert you, would you really believe that I believed what I believe? No, you would think that if he's not willing to try to convince me to what the Bible says, then I probably didn't believe what the Bible says. And so if you're in the room today, I promise you this, I'm not going to be a jerk. I'm not going to be uh, pushy. I'm not going to be hateful. I'm going to read the room. I'm going to follow social cues. I'm not going to come down and get you in your seat after the service. I promise. But what's in the book? I believe. And I think it could change your life today. So if you would just be open-minded with me for a few minutes, let's look at Acts 16. We're going to observe three gospel conversations with three persons of interest. The first encounter that we have here in scripture is with a woman whose name is Lydia. So if you have your Bibles, let's begin in verse number 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to a woman who had come together. One, the one who, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. If we're looking at this purse of Lydia here and we're taking a few nuggets out of scripture right here about who she is, we understand that Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. If you can imagine just for a minute, she was put together. She was driven. She was brilliant. She was well-known. She was well-respected in the community. She was a seller of purple, purple being a color that was of royalty or expensive. So she had money. She was also religious. She was spiritual. She was a religious person. We know that because she was going to a prayer meeting and Paul's going to eventually have a gospel conversation with her, but she's not a Christ follower. She's interested in Christ. She's curious about Christ. She's willing to go to a prayer service, maybe because of um, it was good for her business or maybe it helped her um, in society, but she was interested enough that she would go to church, but she wasn't a Christ follower. In this passage, we understand that she's going to get saved because Paul's going to engage her in a gospel conversation because of her curiosity. Essentially, he's going to invite her into this evangelistic Bible study, and while he's there, he's going to speak the gospel to her, and God's going to open her heart. If you mark your Bible, and I hope you do, or write it down in a journal somewhere, look at verse number 14. Verse number 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what, God, what was said by Paul. 
That word pay attention there, you could underline that. That word pay attention in the Greek is the same word that we get the word uh, addiction from. Maybe addiction to alcohol or to some kind of substance. What it means is that she began to crave, like someone that was addicted to some kind of substance would crave that. She began to uh, be craving. And in that craving, God opened her eyes to the gospel. And when God opened her eyes to the gospel, what was the result? The result was verse 15. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The second individual that we come in contact with is the slave girl. We find that in verse number 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, so they're walking on their place to prayer. They've already encountered the first lady, Lydia, at the place of prayer. On their way, they encounter another one. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. These scriptures tell us that this girl is the direct opposite of Lydia. Lydia was well-respected. This girl was not well-respected. Historians tell us that this girl was probably in her mid-teens, and she was spiritually in economic cap, uh, captivity. She had a demon that was inside of her. She was a slave, which means she was spiritually and economically captive to that demon. She was not on her way to a prayer meeting. If she wanted to go to the prayer meeting, she couldn't because she was a slave. And second, she had no interest in, no interest in going to a prayer meeting. It says in verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. In this passage here, we see that she is both attracted to and antagonistic towards the faith. What, she, what is she doing? She's following Paul and Silas around and basically being a billboard for the gospel, even though she didn't know she was being. She began to shout out to people, hey, these guys are preaching about the resurrection of Christ. Hey, listen, they're proclaiming the most high God. The problem was is when she was being a billboard for this, people would start gathering and Paul would start teaching and she continued to yell out over top of his teaching and Paul began to get annoyed with it. You have to understand here, there are people that are both interested and antagonistic about their faith. And the reason that is, is because they are captive to abuse, they're captive to addictions, and so they are spiritually interested or attracted to the faith, but also antagonistic about it because they mistrust or because of the abuse that they've experienced in their life. So what happens? How does Paul interact with her in verse number 18? It says, in this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Now I take great comfort in knowing that Paul got annoyed. Can I just say that for a minute? Um, Paul is getting exasperated. He's getting frustrated. He was trying to gospel. this person keeps yelling at him. He gets annoyed. Now, I, I love this in the scripture because I think that it communicates to us that the, 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 if it wasn't true, the writer, why would the writer put this into scripture? You know, he put this into scripture. It, it would say something like Paul having great compassion for her, cast the demon out. No, it said Paul was annoyed. He was annoyed about this and he turns and he speaks to the spirit. 
This is important now. He speaks to the Spirit. He, it doesn't say that he was annoyed with the girl. He was annoyed with the Spirit. So what does he do? He speaks to the Spirit. Catch with me. It says, and he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Paul performs an act of deliverance on her. He knows, uh, he throws out the demon. She, he understood that she needed to be freed before she could be found. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. He dealt with her need so that later she could be found. Conversation number three. The Philippian jailer. Follow with me in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. And they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us, Romans, to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe, safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this next individual is the jailer. What do we know about the jailer? The jailer was a highly decorated Roman soldier. The only way that you got to be in charge of a prison is if you retired out of being a Roman official and you were given a prison basically as your retirement policy. You would go and you would serve there at the prison as a, as a way of honoring you and a way to make some extra cash on the side. And this was your retirement policy. More than likely, this man was older, he was hardened, he was part of the ruling class, and I'm sure he was a cynic. What does he do with Paul and Silas? He puts Paul and Silas, if you read the scripture here, he puts them in an inner prison. An inner prison during that time had different layers, and so Paul and Silas would have been put in the worst conditions in the prison, if you can think about it this way, in the bottom of the prison, so everything that's going on on those upper floors would end up draining to the floor, so disgusting, dank, dark, just nastiest conditions as you could think of. And then he also fastens their feet uh, into stocks. We're talking about stocks, we're not talking about like your head and your arm into these stocks that you go to, you know, take your picture at an amusement park. We're not talking about stocks like that. The stocks during that time were these chains that were sus suspended from the ceiling, and they would put them around your ankles, and then they would pull up on the chains, and your feet would go up, and your body would go backwards, and you'd be hanging upside down with the only thing touching the floor would be your shoulders. If you can imagine just for a minute laying there with all that blood running out of your body, uh, upside down, and then to top it all off, take these, they would take these rods and they would beat your feet with them. Just unimaginable pain that's going on in this text. So we pick up in verse 26, it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening. Mark that in your Bible, that the prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the, fountains, the foundations of the prisons were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
Now, in this time, if you lost a prisoner, you had to replace him with your own life. You would have been killed for losing a prisoner. This ensured that no one lost a prisoner. You can imagine this was a pretty good incentive personally to make sure that you kept things on lockdown. So what does Paul do? Paul cries out with a loud voice. Yeah, you're getting what you deserve, you jerk. Is that what he says? No. He says, no, no. Don't harm yourself. For we're all here. Here's the question. Why is Paul still there? He's innocent. He shouldn't still be in the prison. The walls are down. God's worked a miracle on his behalf. If you read back to Acts chapter 12, the same thing happened to Peter, and Peter just walked out. He said, peace, I'm out. Paul, still here. Why? Because Paul recognized this is part of the plan to reach Philippi. He had just prayed in previous verses, God, use me, do whatever you want in my life to be able to reach the city of Philippi. Even, even, is this being distracting, Brandon? Not to me, but maybe to you. Is it, is it bothering y'all? If it's not bothering you, let's go. Let's go. If I need it, I'll Tell me if, if not, all right? If it becomes an issue, let me know, because I don't want you to miss what God has for us today. So he recognizes. He understands that he's prayed in previous times. That God would reach the city of Philippi. And he says, even in my suffering, even if it means me being in jail, even if it means me, you taking my life, if it reaches the city of Philippi, I'm willing to do it. He says, put me in prison so that I can suffer well. And in suffering well, I can show the Philippian jailer what it looks like to have the joy of my salvation, even in the toughest of persecution. It was a price that he was willing to pay. So Paul stands there with a choice on his hand. On this side, his freedom to walk free. And on this side, a man that's cruelly beat him over the last 24 hours. And he looks at his two options and he turns towards the man that is lost. The man that is far from God. The man that has inflicted pain on him over the last 24 hours. He chooses him. You can see why this jailer is going to be so moved in these next verses because he walks away from his freedom to lean in to the man who has been persecuting him. Verse 29, it says, And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembled with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He says to him, What must I do? And I can imagine in my own mind right now, Paul is saying, Do... There's nothing that you can do. It's already been done for you. And he says that in the next verse here. He says, there's nothing that you can do. All that you have to do is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Man, if I could, I would just went down to that, uh, that Christmas store down the road here. Have y'all ever drove past there and they had that big sign out front that says believe? Man, if I could have got that up here on the stage today, that would have been epic. And I'm, still, and I'm still interested in sealing that thing and still putting it on the front lawn and being like, hey, what, what must you do to be saved? Believe. They're, sell, they're uh, giving us a great billboard down there. Just believe. What do I have to believe, Casey? You have to believe that Jesus Christ 
lived a perfect life that you can never live. You have to believe that Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death that you deserve. You have to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and hell for you. You just have to believe. So many times we think it's about doing, and this jailer fell into that same trap. What do I have to do to be saved? It's done. Just believe. The simplest, shortest gospel message you'll ever hear, believe. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he baptized them at once. You want to know why we call you guys the spontaneous baptism, you adults in the room? Because it's scriptural. Last week, Pastor Brandon said, if you come down, we'll baptize you right now. At the end of the service today, same thing. If you want to come down, it's still hot. I just got out of it. You come on down, we'll baptize you today. Why? Because it's scriptural. It says, and at once, he and his family... Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that had believed. This chapter contains three stories. Now, of all the stories that are in the scripture, all the stories that are of the people that got saved here in Philippi, and I'm sure there was more than three, why is the writer communicating to us these three stories? With a few minutes that I have left, I'd just like to give you a couple things of why I think Luke is communicating this story to us and what it tells us about the gospel and how it helps us reach our city. First off, this story helps us better understand the gospel, namely that the gospel is for everyone. There's three completely different type of people in this passage. There is a religious person, well off, has a lot of money. There's a slave girl, and there's a Roman soldier. You couldn't get any different in Scripture than those three people. Why? Because the writer here is trying to communicate to you that the Scripture is, the gospel is for everyone. There is no type when it comes to being a Christian. I'll have people tell me this all the time, especially to students. Well, I'm just, I'm just not the Christian type. Well, good, there is no type. There is no type with Jesus. We all have one sin problem. We all have one problem in that sin, and we all have one hope, and that's Jesus Christ. It doesn't take you being a type. It just has to do with you believing. Every morning, a Jewish man would pray this prayer, and we find this prayer in a, a, an old Hebrew book called the Siddur. And in the Siddur, they would pray this every morning, Lord, I thank God I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now, that's not a very politically correct statement today, but during that time, this is what they prayed because Jewish men felt they were above these three types of people. So they would say, I pray, I thank God that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And what does the passage right here talk about? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Wow, because he's trying to communicate to us that there is, the gospel is for everyone. All mankind, rich, poor, black, white, young, old, conservative, liberal, religious, irreligious, from a good family, from a broken family, we all have one problem, sin, and one hope, that's Jesus Christ. I don't know who you are in the room today and what you've done, and, and, uh, but all you have to do is believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 10 talks to us about this. It says that there is no difference between Jew or Greek, in black or white or rich or poor, or young or old or male or female. It says that the same Lord is over all, is rich in mercy on all who call on him. And it says, and I love this part, for whosoever 
shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That whosoever is you this morning, that whosoever, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much you've done for Christ or how much that you've done for the world. It doesn't matter what your situation is. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your political affiliation. All it is is whosoever will come. That's what he's asking this morning. That's what he's telling you. Please come. The gospel is for everyone. It also teaches us how to reach our city. How do we reach our city? There's three individuals in this story, and there's three different types of people that are in our city. And I think this communicates to us as the church, how do we reach our city? The first person that we see here is the curious. That's who we would call Lydia, the curious. Why do we know that she's curious? Because she's, it says that she's a religious person. She's actually going to a worship service, even though she's not a Christ follower. And what does Paul do? Paul engages her in a spiritual conversation and studies the Bible with her. There are a lot of people in our context that are interested in spiritual things. Sometimes these people have a spiritual background. Maybe they grew up in the church. Maybe they're interested in the church in some way because it can bring some value to their life. Um, maybe they uh, have been religious from another religion. Sometimes we call these people CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only folks. They are interested in the church. Some people are just active in the church, but they're not super engaged. They haven't ever followed Christ. And they're just interested or curious. What do we do with the curious folks that are in our community? What do we do with the curious folks that are in our church? We invite them. We invite them to church. As I was reading this week, Marissa helped me with this on some statistics from Lifeway Research. It says that 35% of people will come to church if invited. But better than that, 51% of unchurched people, unchurched people will come to church with you if you, as a friend or a family member, invite them. 51%, that's one out of two. That's a really good percentage. I could go to the Hall of Fame with those percentages, you know what I mean? Like, two, two out, one out of two will come to church with you if you just invite them. These are unchurched people. These are people that don't always, you know, uh, believe like we believe. They will come if a friend and family member, 51%. Just a casual person that you met on the street, 35% will come with you. But you know what the shocking statistics are? Only 43% of church members invite unchurched people to church. Only 43%. That percentage is lower than the people that would actually come to church. What does that tell us? Invite. Green Hill Church, we have to become an invite culture around here. Invite people to church. And don't think that they have to get cleaned up before they come here. Just bring them. We also invite people into reading God's word with you. Those guys at the lunch table at work. Those guys that are just interested. Hey, what are you reading over there? Those people that are just want to use the Bible as maybe just a better way of a, a moral book for them. Just, just invite them in to read the Bible with you. Write down some scripture for them. Say, hey, these are my 10 favorite verses out of the Bible. I'd love for you to read them with me, and we'll talk about them next week, and I'll buy you coffee at Starbucks. Or, hey, let's read James together. My church is going through James together. Will you read this with me? Or First John, or one of, the, one of the Gospels. Just invite them into reading the Bible with you. Also, a great way is invite them to a life group outing. You're involved in a life group, hopefully. We, we encourage our life group groups to party once a month. 
Why? Because partying once a month gives really good invite opportunities for you to invite people that would come to your life group outing that would never come into our church. Start inviting. As you invite, as you have these conversations, look for what God is doing in their life. Don't forget about the previous where it talks about God opened their heart. Pray that God does that for your Lydia, whoever that is, that God opens their heart. I love this phrase, the Lord opened their heart, because it takes the pressure off of me. And it puts the pressure back on him. Let him do it. He wants to do it. God is the one who does the convicting. Someone effective in sharing the gospel believes two things. Salvation belongs to God and faith comes by hearing. That's the two things that you have to understand. Salvation is God's work. Telling is our work. God wants to do his work, but he's commissioned us and he has called us to be his mouth and his ears to his people. That's how we reach person number one. But the problem is this is church and this is where individuals stop in sharing Jesus because the other two type of people are not coming to the church. These are the low level fruit right here. These people that already have a spiritual inclination, the curious. But this is where we stop, and as a church, we cannot stop if we're going to reach our city. The slave girl is never going to show up at our church. The cynic is never going to show up to our church. The Roman soldier is never showing up here. It doesn't matter how great our music is. It doesn't matter how cute our sermon series is. They're never coming here. So what's our responsibility to them? Number two, the slave girl, the captive. She is spiritually and physically captive. How are we going to reach this girl? Just like Paul did. We're going to get involved in their lives, no matter how messy it is. Let me just tell you, you're going to get annoyed. You're going to get aggravated. You're going to get frustrated. And you know why? Because they're captive to sin. They're going to do things that are inconvenient for you. And you, like Paul, are going to say, I'm not going to get frustrated with the individual. I'm going to get annoyed at whatever is captivating them. Because you understand that for this person to be found, they have to be freed. And so you're going to go to them and you're going to help meet their need. Whether that's a physical need so you can have a spiritual conversation. You're going to go where there are. You're going to go to the prison. You're going to go to the homeless ministry. You're going to go to the pregnancy center. You're going to go to the food bank. You're going to go to the school system. Why? Because we're going to meet their physical need so we can meet their spiritual need. They need to be freed so they can be found. Lastly, the Philippian jailer, how are we going to reach the cynic? This guy got saved because of two things. He observed Paul and Silas joy in the midst of suffering and he was the res- and they were the recipient of extravagant grace. Paul recognized that God was appointing his suffering to reach the jailer, which is why he didn't run when the earthquake happened. What if in the midst of our suffering, our first thought was not God, what have I done wrong? But God, Whose life are you trying to use me in? I'm telling you, this will transform your way of thinking if you stop looking at God as someone that caused your pain and someone that brought you this pain so that you can suffer well to be able to reach the jailer. As I finish today, let me tell you two things about your pain that I think will help you this morning. The first one is this. See it coming and then see it through. First off, see it coming. 
Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by suffering, by pain, by circumstances that come up in your life. God told Paul, he said, I'm appointing you to make my name famous among the Gentiles. And part of that is going to include suffering. He's saying to the church today, he's saying, if you're going to reach the Gentiles, one of the ways to reach the Gentiles is going to be because you are going to have to suffer well. So next time, instead of saying, why me, God, instead of saying, what have I done wrong? Why don't you turn to John 16, and say in the world, you will have tribulation. This is God's word to you. This is comfort for you as a believer this morning in the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And realize that your pain is part of Jesus overcoming the world here in Mount Juliet. And he's going to use it for you to help someone else see the glorious reality of the gospel because you're suffering well. And choose exactly that. Be of good cheer. See it coming and see it through. Make a choice never to cease praising God. Never to cease. I'm going to make it a choice in my life that I'm never going to cease praising God. You have to choose and you have to choose it daily. You're not always going to feel like it. You'll have to say with Habakkuk in in chapter 3, when all things were going terrible in the nation of Israel, the prophet Habakkuk, he stood up and said this. He said, though the fig tree will not bud, though the grapes in the field are not ripe, though the olive crops fail and produce no fruit, there's no sheep in the pen, there's no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. It's a choice. You have to do it. Why? You say, Casey, why do I have to, why do I have to step into this suffering? Why does God bring it in my life? The prisoners are listening. The jailers listening. They're not coming to Jesus any other way. Can I say something else to the parents that are in the room? Our children are listening. You're just going to have to step into that suffering. Step into that pain and say, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. No matter what it costs and whatever it is to reach that next generation, whatever it is to reach my child, I want to be joyful in this suffering. If I could just be honest with you just for a second, I didn't share this with the first service, but, and I'm way over on time, but just stick with me. This last 18 months at the Coulter House has been so hard. As a pastor, I never thought I I was going to have to do this, but I've buried my granddad this year. I've done his funeral. I buried my grandmother this year. I've done her funeral. Just a couple weeks ago, I I buried my father-in-law all within the last 18 months. It's been a hard season at the Coulter House. But Abby and I, we just get together and we hold hands and we say, our children's listening. The prisoners are listening. And I'm going to walk in this and I'm going to try to steward it and I'm going to try to be faithful in it. 
because I want my kids to grow up with some grit. We're missing a generation of parents that just got this Christian grit about them that just walk into it and walk through it holding hand in hand with Jesus. We're missing some of that old time religion and you wonder why our kids are walking away when they get to college and things get tough because mom and daddies are walking away from it. They're not just walking with God through this. Things got hard and you start blaming things on God. God is calling you something deeper than that. The prisoners are listening. Our children are listening. See it through. And don't just see it through, but do it exuberantly. Talk about it. Declare it. Sing about it. Put a smile on your face through it. Don't just grin and bear it. And I know there's some days you have to grin and bear it, but smile your way through it. Worship your way through it. The prisoners are listening. Why do we encourage you to worship so exuberantly in this place? Why do we ask you to get a smile on your face and raise your hand and sing praises to God? Because worship puts our belief in God's promises on display for everyone out there. And some days I don't feel like coming in here and raising my hands and singing. And I get that, but I'm speaking to myself. I'm preaching to myself. I'm going to raise my hands. I'm going to smile. I'm going to sing, even if I can't sing, because what I am saying is I'm putting on a display for everyone else that I believe in the promises of God. Pain and unfortunate circumstances are the chance for you to display the hope and joy that you have in Christ. Pain and tragedy are our best chance to witness to this world. How about as a church, we resolve together that in the worst of worst, that we will give our best of our best for the greatest of the greatest. We're going to give them Jesus. Because I'm telling you, there's Lydia's in our streets. There's slave girls in our streets. There's Roman soldiers that are in our streets. And the only way that we're going to reach them is what Acts 16 says. In our student ministry, there's Lydia's. In our student ministry, there's kids that are captive. There's cynics in our student ministry. The only way that we're going to reach them is an incredible amount of love, engaging them in a gospel conversation, walking through suffering with them. Just give them Jesus. That's how we reach our city. That's how we reach our community. For the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today just so overwhelmed by your grace and your gospel in our lives. All this is possible because of you and your love for us and your son. I know the people in this room and their stories all over this room about people that were religious and you sought after them. People that were enslaved to sin and you kept pursuing them. People that were cynics and just turned their back to the Bible. And you continued to pursue them and it was individuals in their lives that suffered well that brought them to you. And we just say thank you today. Thank you that while we were in our sin, you pursued us and you died for us and you want us to restore us to yourself. If you're in the room today and you're an unbeliever, just let me talk to you for a minute. Today is the day of salvation for you. All you have to do is believe. Here in just a minute, I'm gonna, uh, Pastor Cameron's gonna pray, uh, he's gonna sing, I'm gonna ask you guys to stand, and I'm gonna stand right here in the middle. And if you wanna believe today, if you wanna ask Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior, I'll stand here and I'll introduce him to you today. Have the guts, have the courage to step out and believe today. If you're in the room today and you're a Christ follower, I know without a doubt that God brought a name to your mind, brought a picture to your mind, brought a person to your mind today. 
And what I'm asking you today is this, make an altar out of your seat, make an altar out of the front, and we need to begin to beg and plead and cry. We need some Jeremy's that will get on their knees with their spouse and pray over the lost. Is that you today? Will you have the courage to turn in your seat and pray for that name? Will you have the courage to come down front today and pray for that name? God wants us to reach our city and he's given the means to do so, but will we obey? Where are my Paul and Silas's? Heavenly Father, do your work in Jesus' name. Will you stand with me? Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.